I will tell you one of my biggest pet peeves is when an employer says, we're hiring, here's our pay range. And we have a candidate that comes in and we ask them, so what are you looking for as far as pay? And they say something below our pay range and we hire them and pay them what they ask for. That is one of my biggest pet peeves because that's not what we determined the value of the job is. Now, if we're hiring that candidate and saying, okay, you don't have all the qualifications that we want. So we'll start you out here, help you develop so you can get there. That's one thing. But we've got to be, we've got to be transparent and say, this is, this is what we're paying for. These are our compensable factors. So we're going to pay on skills. We're going to pay on education. We're going to pay on experience, responsibility, whatever that is. And we identify that. So then we can have valid conversation with employees when they ask, why am I being paid this? Welcome to PCC Local Time. I am your host, Nancy Hess, and I am excited to continue our six-part conversation series on busting HR myths with Kim Nash. Today, we will talk about whether organizations that pay the most get the best employees and how HR can become the scapegoat in organizations. Sometimes HR is a slow draw for managers. Many a manager has looked across the table at me when we begin an HR project and has said, this is my least favorite part of this job. All the more reason, I say, to hire an HR professional. Kim Nash teaches for the Society of Human Resource Management, SHRM, and also has a consultancy focused on helping HR professionals grow their career. Today, we talk about why employees stay or go and the ways in which HR is often caught in the crossfires of manager-employee issues. If you are interested in learning more, sign up for the PCC newsletter via the link found in the show notes. That is also where you will find out how to connect with Kim. I begin our conversation today by asking Kim, why is it that top-paying employers are having difficulty hiring employees? So, off we go. I'll drive down the road and I'll see organizations that are paying like $30 an hour to start, but they're still advertising or billboards. And it says we're going to pay for warehouse jobs, $28 an hour. And I know most warehouses might only be paying $17. And you look at it and you say, okay, top paying employers still are struggling to get employees. So the pay may be appealing. It may be appealing to attract the candidate, but it obviously isn't helping to retain the employee because they would be, if that was true, you wouldn't have any job openings. So maybe people are looking at it and going, great, they're working for an organization like, wow, I can go down the street and I can make $5 an hour more. And they leave and they go down there, down the street, making $5 an hour more. And once they get there, they're realizing this is not a great place to work. And so they're not sticking around. So I think we have to think about what is it that motivates employees? Sure, there's employees out there that are going to job hop because they can make more money and they're gonna, then they're going to go to the next employer. That's going to happen. But for most employees, and I'm going to go out here on a limb and I'm going to say, it's not all about the money. Now, let me be very clear. But it, nonprofit organizations don't pay as much as for-profit. There's no doubt about that. And people still go there because they're there because of the mission. But that's not a reason to take advantage of people. So I'm not saying that we should take advantage of people because they're there for the mission or for whatever purpose. 
but you just can't. You're talking about local government. You have a budget and you have to stick with that budget. You don't have that opportunity to just somebody comes in and says, I can go down the street and make $5 an hour more. And you say, okay, we'll pay you $5 an hour more. But I think we have to keep in mind, and again, I said this in the last session, that we don't just look at the negative that we may not be the top payer, so we just give up. We're not going to be able to do anything because that's not true. It may attract people, but it doesn't keep them. I think this is such an important point. And I would insert here this, what we both know is that the cost of losing an employee, great. And so being able to entice them in, and I do see this, how much do we have to pay to, to attract more people? But if turnover is really the issue that you're dealing with, yeah. then you have to think about why are they not staying? And of course, there's the stay interviews that, that I think is catching on, really understanding why those employees stay and trying to be a little bit more clear in, in the message to in your recruitment about what would, might entice you here, that it's more than the money. It might be interviewing. I don't know. What else can you say? Like, how is it that you discern if you're offering a really good pay, are there some things that employers should do or can do to better discern whether this is going to be a long-term employee? Yeah. Yeah. And I think asking em employees are going to, or care dates, I should say, in the interview process are going to tell you what you want to, what they think you want to hear to get the job. But I think historically, as we, I, I, and I'm a big believer in the stay interviews, that helps us to understand before an employee leaves, what we need to do to keep that employee. Because by the time, a lot of organizations do exit interviews, and I'm not saying, I don't have anything against exit interviews, but by the time the person exits the company or the organization, it's too late. So let's do stay interviews. Let's talk to employees. Let's find out what, what we can do to make things better. But it really, I think, goes back to how the candidate was treated in the interview process as well. And I always liked, I always encourage employers that once they're on board, 30 within 30 days, there should be a follow-up with that candidate. So tell me about your experience in the interview process, the recruitment process. Tell me what we could have done better because we want to know if there aren't worth things that we can fix so that candidate doesn't just walk out the door. Because you're right, you can, the cost of turnover is extremely high and we want to keep that person. Yep. And I always ask HR professionals or leaders, hiring managers, when was the last time you applied for a job in your organization? What was it like? How difficult was it to go through that process? Because people are just going to give up. They're going to be like, oh my gosh, this is just so difficult and I can go down and get a job somewhere else. But I think understanding what motivates people. Again, it's not everybody's motivated by pay. Sure, that's an enticer, but there, there's more to it than that. And I think we, and it's going to be different for everybody, but getting to know your employees and what motivates them. Yeah. It's important to say, these are the kinds of things that we do here that people get excited about. Does that excite you? Yeah. yeah. Beyond that, I think it's also important to say, for instance, in local government, sometimes the public is not happy with us. Yeah. And you really have to be able to tolerate sometimes this anger or just frustration. So. We used to call this realistic job preview. I don't know if that term is still, yeah. new, but there is a piece of it also has to be there. It has to say, yep. 
things that you also encounter in this work mm-hmm. may not be comfortable. And I always like to identify this in job analysis and give the candidates uh, the sure. job description, but sometimes that's not enough. It's talking to people. And you mentioned the onboarding. Oh gosh, the, the onboarding has really evolved. And I guess most organizations are not going to be able to go through all of these steps, but sure. for instance, this, this term cohort when you come into an organization in a group, they might have this group meet quarterly because mm-hmm. they were hired within the same time frame, and then they come together. So they get the, some bonding happening as well, which mm-hmm. is an interesting concept. Yeah. And another thing that I've seen organizations do is they will have a buddy. <clears throat> and so what that when you're hired, you're put with a buddy. And that... It, Again, to help you come into the organization, get acclimated to the organization, feel like you're a fit. And so I've seen organizations do that. And I think that helps really well because if people feel that they're, they just come in and they're thrown in and connections are important. And if I don't have connections, then I'm going to go to the next place. So onboarding is super important. It is, I always say that retention starts in the recruitment process. How was the person treated in the recruitment process? But then when they walked in the door, and unfortunately, a lot of organizations are not doing a great job with training. They're just saying, I need people and just go and do this. But I love the job preview, the realistic job preview in the interview process. And there's a couple of different ways you can do this. But, you know, have, you can hire somebody and say, I know this isn't realistic to maybe this audience, but we have a warehouse and it has a freezer. We have freezer food in the freezer and you're going to have to work in the freezer all day. Oh, cold doesn't bother me. Yeah. When you're eight hours in that freezer, it's going to bother you. And so they need to experience that. You can talk about that in the interview, but until you are actually living Mm -hmm. that, or I've had organizations that manufacture, like I remember one HR professional telling me they manufacture dog food and People would come in to work and they're like, I can't stand the smell. And so having that realistic job preview. So what does that look like? Can they come and shadow somebody for a couple hours a day before they make a decision? Having them talk to employees that are doing the job and asking what are the pros and cons? I want to be inter- I want to be honest with them in the interview process because I don't want to have someone start and then they're like, oh, I don't like this and they leave. That creates a lot more problems. Let's be honest up front. Uh, so anything that we can do to give them a, a real preview of what the job is going to benefit us in the long run. Yeah. I think that the HR group that that is that we could pull together for a conversation about this could give lots of examples. I certainly think about county government. I think this is critical, the county government level, whether it's mm-hmm. corrections or the oh, yeah. services department, that you really have an experience of just a rush of people. I think at the local government level, probably the one that comes to the top is the police department. And police department environments can feel very different. And I've been doing this community safety series lately, so I've had a chance to talk to a lot of managers and chiefs. And I will tell you, and this is not just recent, it's over time, I've noticed this. There is um, some departments that are top paid. They are top paid. Police departments are not keeping their officers. and. I've been asked what I think is going on. And I'll tell you, my response is 
something's happening in that department that's probably a little toxic. They'll say, oh, no, I think they're leaving because they're getting a bonus someplace else. That might be true, too, because some of the departments are getting a bonus. That could be pay is the driving factor for some officers. But there would be over time, again, that goes back to recruitment methods. If you want to draw from candidate pool that wants to be in this region, that wants to be here in this community. I think that's important. But I also think that the that employees learn quickly when they come on board if the culture and the environment is not mm-hmm. not healthy. Yep. And I and they might even, if they're not applying, if they're not even getting candidates, it may be through the grapevine that they're learning this yep. is not the best department to be in. And I think there's one point that we did talk about how much it costs to have turnover, but I, what I see, and I'm sure you can attest to this, is that it's a mental, it's a morale cost. Employees get very down when they lose a co-employee after maybe an initial period of, wow, we finally got somebody, they're enthusiastic, and, and then boom, they leave. It makes them feel like maybe we are less than. So there's a whole lot of factors here. So turning that around and thinking about what do employees really want? We have to balance not just offering them what we want, which is very important, but providing to them, as you said, those very basic onboarding and consideration for what it feels like, what that experience is, yeah. the recruitment and hiring process. Yeah. So I want to jump back to something that you said with the sign-on bonuses. Most HR people that I talk to hate the sign-on bonuses. They absolutely despise those. And there's a couple of reasons. Number one, if I'm an existing employee in the organization and you're paying a sign-on bonus to a new employee coming in, so I need to quit and I can get rehired, then I can get a sign-on bonus. So they're not real popular with your current employees. But the other thing too, it's a one-time thing. It's a one-time thing. Again, it may attract the person to the organization, but it's not going to keep them. Once they, whatever the requirement is, and they meet that requirement to get that sign-on bonus, then they're going to leave. So it's an attractor, but it doesn't keep them. So the sign-on bonuses, I think we need to be rethinking those because they're not a long-term thing and they irritate your current employees. So we, we need to look at what are those things that keep employees. and. We talk, I've been through some training programs on customer satisfaction. We talk about the stickiness of your customer. Well, we really need to talk about the stickiness of your employee. And you're right. If the employee gets onboarded and realizes this environment is toxic and they leave, they're going to go tell other people. And then that ruins your employment brand. So we're going back to what we talked about in the last episode, your employment brand. So that's really important. We need to make sure. And sometimes in organizations, I will know that the leadership knows that the culture is not good and they just ignore it because it's too big. Okay, how do we change this? And it's just too big of a problem. I can pay more money. That's easier than trying to fix my culture, but that's not a long-term solution. But you're exactly right that we need to be looking at the work environment and we need to be putting solutions in place. It's not going to, it didn't get that way overnight and it's not going to change overnight, but it takes time. Wow. You just really got down to brass tacks there. (laughs) There are some things that are very difficult to change. I always advise when I'm working with an organization that the process alone will give you a boost just 
asking the questions, but yeah. you have to be committed to it. You have to come out the other side and keep moving. You can't just do it as a one-time bump. You've really got to be committed, but it doesn't have to take years. It can take sure. until you begin to get mm-hmm. a positive response. And when you ask employees, and I, I, these are, going back to this point, employees who reach out and say, they have this great benefit. This place is a great place to work. It always has to be first. People are great here. And two, they have this great benefit. Pay's not so great, but this benefit. And so maybe we could talk a little bit about what is that second piece? Let's just make mm-hmm. the assumption that the people are good. Pay is average. What's the next layer? So I think it's more than just pay. It's a total rewards program. So yes. Okay. Compensation. And it's fascinating. I'll talk to employees and they'll say, a lot of times employees will say, I'm leaving because I can make more money. That's true, but that might not be the actual reason. But okay. So let's take the fact that you're going down the street and you're going to make $2 an hour more. Okay. What are you paying for benefits down there? And I'll ask that question. I don't know. So right now you're paying, let's say, $50 a week here, and you're going to make $2 an hour more. What if you now have to pay $150 a week for benefits? Your take-home pay is going to be not quite $100 less because of the way that the pre-tax works. So how are you making more money? And so employees don't think about that. They don't think about all the other things that they get. And we are not, and I will say this across the board from an HR perspective, we don't do a good job of communicating that to employees. They know this is my hourly rate and down the street, they're paying more. Yeah. There's something that bothers me and maybe you can reflect on this as well. The SHRM and the employment trends talked about employers finding out offering, instead of doing matching for their retirement plans, they were saying to employees, you can take this money and use it and put it in other areas instead of putting it into your retirement. And I can tell you from my own experience, being in your 20s, you're thinking, yeah, give me that money. Sure. And I I guess I'm on the fence about this because Mm -hmm. sometimes in local government, this is particularly important. It's not like business. You're not going to always be able to make it up in uh, in pay raises. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's that matching that is the most valuable aspect Mm -hmm. of the benefits program. And it's almost, I feel like doing an injustice to Mm -hmm. even put that out to take away. Yeah. Think about that. So I think one of the, I think what you're alluding to is the cafeteria style benefits. So what's fascinating is there's a couple different. So I worked for many years for a benefit broker. We worked through this and it's a struggle. Number one, you probably have four, maybe even five generations in the workforce. And each generation is going to value certain benefits differently. So you're right. Somebody that's in their 20s is going to say, I don't really care about the match to my retirement because I'm probably never going to get to retire or whatever. I don't really care. I don't really plan on sticking around here till I retire. So they're not really thinking about retirement. What the younger generation is thinking about is I want time off. I want time off. If they're under 26, they're on mom and dad's health insurance. They don't really care about health insurance. They want time off. They want money in their paycheck and they want time off. Now, if I'm 55 years old, 
I'm thinking about retirement and I'm thinking about I need to build up that nest egg as much as I can. I need my health insurance. So so one of the challenges is how do we how do we deal with the different generations and the emphasis that they put on benefits? So one of the things that has come out is this cafeteria style benefit. Now, the challenge with it, it is a nightmare to administer. That's the one challenge. And the second thing is that benefits are very heavily regulated by the government under ERISA laws. So you have to make sure that the plan that you put in place is legally compliant. And that because so now you're going to have to get an attorney involved in that. I'm not saying that you can't do it, but just understand it's not as simple as, okay, we're going to say you get $500 in benefit money for the month and you can decide where to go. The other challenge that you have is if is with health insurance, because if you don't have enough people participating in your health insurance, you may not be able to get health insurance. So that be, that c- creates a challenge as well, just understanding how all the different intricacies of, among the benefit plans. So it is something that if you're looking at doing that as an incentive, you may want to make sure that you have a good ERISA attorney that can help you walk through that. That's really helpful, Kim. I just learned a few things. And would like if you could also comment on the one benefit, I guess you call it a benefit, it's the option of saying, I have a partner who also has an employer. And rather than us both going on this insurance plan, Mm -hmm. the partner goes on the other insurance plan, and then I get money back. I don't know exactly what that's called, but I think people understand it's a return back for having less people on the insurance plan. Do you have an opinion about that? There's Mm -hmm. an employer, I think it was $10,000 to go back to that employee Mm -hmm. annually. And I'm thinking that is attractive. Sure. So many employers are looking at that and you're right. So let's say that it costs an employer $50,000 a year to have someone on their health insurance. And if the employee has the option to get health insurance somewhere else, again, you have to be careful about this because, and I hate to get too technical, but it's not simple, just cut and dry, you can do this. If someone's eligible for Medicare, care, for example, they're 65, but they're still working, they're eligible for Medicare, and you're an employer that has more than 20 employees, you cannot give them an incentive to go on Medicare. That's illegal. So you have to be careful, again, if you're going to do what we call an opt-out bonus and say, okay, if you have insurance through your partner, through their employer, and you don't go on our insurance, we'll give you a $10,000 bonus. I always recommend you do it on a monthly basis or a per pay basis because that partner could lose their benefits. And now the employee comes back and says, I need to go on the benefits. So if we give them a one-time lump sum, that's a problem. So we do it per pay, but it is income to the employee and therefore they do have to pay taxes and that type of thing on it. And it needs to be set up in your Section 125 plan. So again, anytime we tinker with benefits, we need to make sure that we're following the ERISA rules. But you absolutely can do it. You just need to make sure that you have it set up properly. That's very interesting. I think I heard you say $50,000 a year for insurance. Is that possible? I think I'm seeing <laughs> 15 to 20. Yeah. But I didn't know if maybe family plans were larger, but yeah, no, it's probably that I was probably exactly. <laughs> okay <laughs> for emphasis. But no, you're looking at some, especially if you're a small employer, you're under 50, you're paying 
your insurance rates are based on the age of your employees. So there, so if you're under 50, you're getting community rated. And so if you have a lot of, if you have, a, I mean, I've seen, and I haven't looked at health insurance for a couple of years because I've been out of it, but I would see plans where a single employee was $800 a month if they were like 55, 60 years old, but somebody that was 25 was $300 a month. There's a $500 a month difference. So yeah, I'm yeah. exaggerating, but. I just did a benefits survey for a client. And one of the things that we did was at the very end, we asked the employees if they knew we listed about 10 different areas of benefits where the organization was relative to the national average. In other words, are we at, below, at, or above the national average? And when they were done, they could click a button. And then I posted sort of a chart. Right. Hey, this is where the organization's at. This is where the national average is. And I posted references. They could go in and read the actual reference. And it was really interesting because I think that is to the education piece, employees often don't know what it is that the cost is now or, or appreciate the cost. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I would agree. Yeah. One of the things that I did also read in the SHRM trends was that, that some employees are seeing employers as a gateway to education, training and education. I think I also see this anecdotally I, because education has become so expensive. There's one area of, of helping to pay off loans. I don't see that in local government, but I do see local governments who are stepping up. Just interviewed a police department. They will let the officers go through all levels, bachelor's, master's. Some are getting their doctorate, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. But sure. they're putting this emphasis on education as one mm -hmm. of the top benefits. And that seems to be standing out for sure. Yeah, no doubt. And I think when you look at Gallup, research does a lot of research in the employee engagement area and they do a ton of research and they when they enter when you look at their results it is basically that if people are leaving companies for growth opportunities so one of the big questions you know and part of the employment brand is here's the professional development that we offer understand that okay employees may use this okay i can get into this and I'll be honest, I've told people, before you go back for your master's degree, get a job and get a job with the company that will help fund that for you. Because a lot of times people come out with a master's degree from college, but they don't have any experience and they're expecting to get a certain salary, but they're not going to get that because they have no work experience. And but I digress. But and that's something that employees are looking at. And so, yes, you may say we offer this and then the employee is going to leave. Maybe. But what that employee is going to say is, again, this was a great employer. They gave me a start. They gave me the professional development. And again, that's part of the employment brand. And that's positive PR for the organization. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hard sell to employers, but I, know. I agree 100% with you. Now, this brings us to the tough nut to crack, and it's a flexibility piece. I remember doing my master's at the same time, I was working a full-time mm -hmm. consulting job and it nearly killed me. But thank goodness I was in my 20s. <laughs> and so <laughs> I knew how to, in the car at lunchtime. I think that flexibility is the key to so many areas. And you started out, I think it was in the last episode, by saying not everybody, there's not all jobs that you can be flexible with. I think that's true. And yet I think we still have to find ways to do it. And yeah, for public works and local government, 
I think they're experimenting with schedules. I think mm-hmm. they are yes. giving some leeway, different schedules so that people can get time off for the important events in their life, whatever it is. And that is the one area that I, I think is defining the future. And I don't know what that's going to look like. Do you have any right. sense of yeah. that? No, it's a great point. And maybe people have heard of this or not. It's called the gig economy. And this is where, this even before COVID, people were saying, you know what, I'm going to go work in the gig economy. And that's where they have the flexibility. Think of Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, DoorDash. All of those are, these are people that are working when they want to. And so we saw a surge of that before COVID. And I think COVID has really increased that more and more people are saying, I want flexibility. I want to work when I want to work. And so that is going to be the future. We need to be looking at that. How can we create our work schedules so that employees feel that they have flexibility? And it's hard. If you're in a manufacturing plant, that's going to be a challenge. But we have to learn to be creative. Yes, we operate Monday through Friday, nine to five. So what does that look like? And some organizations are going to like four tens. Okay, so now how do you do that when you operate nine to five? Are there other things that can be done outside of that schedule? So again, I think it's getting away from this is the way we've always done it. We need to move past that. Yep, that's the way we've always done it. It's not going to work today. We need to sit down. And again, this comes back to where I think we need to have a network where we can sit down and we can brainstorm and we can talk about this. And the challenge is that I'm not sure who's going to be listening to this podcast, but if it's just HR professionals, they'll sit there and they'll say to me, I will hear this all the time. I understand this. I get this, but I don't know how to get my leadership team to understand this. I yeah, I have heard, for instance, managers talk about just not wanting to go there, and yeah. and yet it is. It I think it is inevitable. They know they're having a hard time now. Some some are helping to lead the way, but it's just it is one that's very difficult to change that mindset. And I can appreciate from an HR perspective, it is a larger conversation. The gig economy is fascinating to me. I think that the pandemic really accelerated this. Yeah. And I think it is also the reason why some people are saying I'm done because they know it may not be a lot of money, but they've got a little bit of money coming in that can help them so they can find the next job Mm -hmm. that can allow them to also have this gig work. So I, I think that's a huge factor. And I think one of the things that that I talk to HR professionals about when they say we have all these open positions, okay, if we have a lot of people in the gig economy, what can you do to incorporate those workers into helping you fill some of the open positions? And again, being creative. Okay, this person doesn't want to work a regular schedule, but We have a couple weeks of work that we need done. And so maybe someone from the gig economy will work three weeks and help us to get this project done. So again, thinking a little bit different about workforce planning. Oh my gosh, I think that's a great point. And I think employers would be flabbergasted if they really thought through there are some workers, there's enough workers now. Some of this sort of flows into the AI conversation I hope we have later on. But their job would shift to a point where they could say, I'll tell you what, I'll work two, three days a week at this amount with no health insurance and deliver what you need. More like a contract worker. Mm -hmm. These employees would really be welcome 
that kind of opportunity as opposed to working five five day week. So I think looking at how we're changing the work to enable people to be more flexible is huge. Yeah, the project based, having project based types of work. And not for every area of service, but certainly a significant part. Mm -hmm. There's one more area that I want to have a conversation before we wrap up. And I know we're just coming to a close here, but it's an important one to me. It has to do with pay information because pay information is so widely distributed. It's out there and it's just getting more again on AI with the chat GPT or some of the newer models that you can you don't have to take your time and go through sure. all these different platforms. You just ask it and boom, it's going to give you a list of what pay is. And I think that heightens the necessity for organizations to take, if pay is still in that black box, you got to take it out and talk about it. Because when I go into organizations and talk to employees about their concerns, it's amazing what they don't understand about the pay. Like the, some of them are paid very well, but they imagine that other people are getting paid better and they don't understand the differences in, in the perceived. So there's a perception of pay, which is inaccurate. And then there's a lack of understanding about what that pay is built on. And I do think that it is a, it's human nature that we ask these questions. And it's also a natural outcome that if we don't answer these questions, employees will get, if they have a little bit of disenfranchisement, they're going to be even feel even more disconnected if they can't get a good understanding of how pay is based in an organization. And it could get more complicated if we do move to some gig type sure. options. Yeah, it's a great point. And from a government perspective, the government, the federal government, I should say, and state government has started passing laws that when employers post jobs, they put the pay range. Now, employers are getting very creative about how they're doing that so that they're not giving away all the answers. But from an employee perspective, transparency is important. They need to know how their pay is calculated. Why am I getting paid $25 an hour, but this employee over here is getting paid $27 an hour? Let me go back to the legal part here. First of all, I've seen organizations where they will say, you can, you're not allowed to talk about wages. And that is a violation of the law. So employees do absolutely have the right to talk about wages. They are going to talk about wages. So we need to, as employers, we need to look at having pay for positions. I will tell you one of my biggest pet peeves is when an employer says, we're hiring, here's our pay range. And we have a candidate that comes in and we ask them, so what are you looking for as far as pay? And they say something below our pay range and we hire them and pay them what they ask for. That is one of my biggest pet peeves because that's not what we determine the value of the job is. Now, if we're hiring that candidate and saying, okay, we don't have all the qualifications that we want. So we'll start you out here, help you develop so you can get there. That's one thing. But we've got to be, we've got to be transparent and say, this is, This is what we're paying for. These are our compensable factors. So we're going to pay on skills. We're going to pay on education. We're going to pay on experience, responsibility, whatever that is. And we identify that. So then we can have valid conversation with employees when they ask, why am I being paid this? You're being paid this because here's your skill level. What do I need to do to make, to go to the next level? Here's the three things that you need to do. So we've got to move into that instead of this big secret. And then the other thing that employers do that so that they don't, they think that they're avoiding the problem is, all right, we're going to give everybody a 3% pay increase. 
Yeah. And that way everybody's getting 3%. The problem is if I'm a really good employee and I'm working next to the guy over here that's like slacking all the time, that's not fair. That person got the same amount of pay increase that I got. So yeah. either I'm going to I'm going to slack off too or I'm going to find another place to work. Again, it's a whole nother area that we could spend tons of time talking about. But we need to be able to justify our pay structures and be able to explain them to employees. Yeah, I think you're right. And sometimes it is very difficult to explain. And there may be organization issues in local government. It's very frequent. We say, here's somebody who's a really good person. Everybody likes this person. But they're not really, they were never really trained for the management position. And so therefore, there's a lot of things happening in that department that are creating some ripple effect, employee disgruntlement, because the manager is not addressing these problems as you like performance issues. And so that can be a very tough issue to address. And it is really part of what we're talking about in this series is that Working through what it is that makes an organization an attractive organization to work at, this is a big one and not going to be able to capture it right. in just one episode, but it's something to think about and to take seriously and to, yeah, give it more thought. Is there sure. anything else, Kim? It's, it, we've covered some mm-hmm. wonderful areas of this topic in organizations that pay the most, don't always get the best employees, and there's reasons for that. And understanding what employees want, although we've covered some really important topics, the best thing to do is just have that conversation. Yeah, yeah. The stay interviews, I think, are just crucial to be able to sit down with employees and talk about what they like, why they stay, and just understand what they like about the work. And then using that information in your employment brand. This is a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much. And our next episode, we're going to be talking about HR as a scapegoat. And I know there's a lot of <laughs> HR professionals that are going to be interested in that topic. So yes. Thank you. Right. Thank you. See you next time. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned. We'll be back in just a few seconds with the next conversation in our Busting the HR Myths series. Welcome to our fourth conversation in the Busting HR Myths series on PCC Local Time. I'm so glad you're here. Today, our topic is HR as scapegoat, and I'm going to ask Kim to begin by talking a little bit about what she means. She makes the point that HR does not terminate employees, managers do. Also, she says HR isn't like the police or the high school principal. And third, that organizations have policies for a reason. So let's get started and hear what she has to say. Sure. Well, let's face it. Terminating employees is not something that the majority of people look forward to doing, regardless if someone absolutely blatantly disregarded rules or things like that. It is a difficult thing to do. And I know that there's some people that can say, this is part of my job. I have to do it. I understand that. But it is just never an easy thing to do. So what tends to happen is, well, managers have to have those hard conversations or they 
I have to work with these people. I don't want to be the bad guy. I don't want to be seen as the bad guy. So it's easy to make HR the scapegoat or HR is the reason that we have to do that. And I've seen that as someone who's gone into organizations as their first HR person, the feeling was, okay, now we have someone that we can pin this on. And if I have to tell my employees, you can't do that, or you have to do this, I can easily say it's HR's, HR says I have to do it. And it makes it easier for them to have the conversation. However, the problem becomes then people look at HR as the bad guy and, oh, here comes HR. Somebody's getting fired today. And there's this reputation that HR is a bad guy. But it's all about a relationship. It's We don't just terminate someone for the fun of it. And I know that in many organizations that are listening to this, you cannot just terminate someone if they're not at will employees. They're under a union contract and you have to follow the union contract. But we can talk about what is the appropriate way to exit someone from an organization. It's not just saying HR is going to do it. Yes, I wonder if you could talk about the the appropriate roles for the manager of the employee versus HR in the mm-hmm. process of termination. Sure. So the manager or the leader of that department organization is really the one that their role is to focus on the employee performance, focus on making sure that the employee understands what the expectations are what the vision is for the organization, where we're going, having conversations, ongoing conversations about, is that employee meeting the expectations? What areas do they need to develop their skill sets? So those conversations are ongoing with the manager. That's what the role of that supervisor is, that manager is really to have those ongoing performance conversations. And so they're building that relationship and that relationship is about here's how we're going to help you to become to be successful here in the organization. But the reality of it is that there are times when employees just don't have the skill set and we've tried to develop it. We can't get there. Or there are employees that are just it's just not a good fit. They don't like the job, they're not passionate about it. And so these things happen, but they're conversations that the managers have. Now, where HR comes in, we want to make sure that there's consistency throughout the organization. We want to make sure that the manager and the supervisor have all the tools and resources they need to have those good conversations to coach employees. And so HR is really a coach to the manager. And then if we get to a point where We just have to part ways with this employee. Then HR is there to support the manager to continue that conversation that's probably already started and to help that manager make sure that they're following all the legal guidelines. But what are the ways that we have that communication? And so HR is there to support and coach the manager. Yes, I like that role, that using that term support. So in essence... And maybe you can be specific about this. Would you recommend that when the termination happens, it's really the manager, if the manager is able to do that, the HR may be in the room to make sure things are handled appropriately or according to policy, but that the manager, there should not be a surprise at that point, that the manager's Mm -hmm. already had the difficult conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've envisioned both of them in the room. 
it depends on the situation. Typically, what's fascinating is the employee should never be surprised by a termination. It might be that they're surprised you actually followed through with it, but they've been forewarned unless it's some egregious thing that they did and we're not going through the normal discipline process. They did something very egregious. They embezzled money or sexual harassment. We don't go, that's immediate termination, but they would have known that's an offense that would get them terminated. So it comes back to, is HR in the room? And it really depends on the situation. I will always say that there should be two people in that room during that conversation. A lot of times what I have done, my role is I have to go in and clean up afterwards. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm not necessarily in the room at the time of the termination, but I go in afterwards and I have said, okay, what questions do you have? And we talk about exiting the organization. I'm not going to do an exit interview because they're upset, but I will talk about, here's what's going to happen. We need to collect your items. We need whatever. So it just really depends on the organization, who's available. If it's a small organization, you might not be able to have two managers in the room and it needs to be the HR person, but there should always be two people in that room during that termination so that there's a witness. And if I'm going to be in the room during that termination, the manager is taking the lead. I am there as a witness. Yeah. Okay. I think that is a good illustration. And also the talk, talking about the witness, there's something else that comes to my mind. I know in difficult terminations, there can be a lot of guilt, even on the part of the manager who is, or the HR person. I've had several stories. I think everyone in HR has some stories about terminations that have not gone right. But I remember one in particular where the manager, actually the HR person was firing the manager and this employee ended up killing himself after the termination. And I won't say more about it, but it was very messy. And I knew from that point forward that I would always recommend that somebody have two people there, that there's always a shared presence so that you never feel that it was something you said. And this person, I'm sure, wasn't the way they did it. They were a very compassionate person. Mm -hmm. But these things can happen. And that's a heavy burden to carry. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example. I, I think of it more from the standpoint of any time, no matter how buttoned up you have it, all the documentation and everything like that, you can never 100% eliminate liabi- any liability. Mm-hmm. So I, I, fortunately, I've never had a situation like that, but it's always good because if this person, they're going to be angry, they're going to be upset, no doubt about it. In most cases, not all cases, some cases they're actually relieved, but they're, the employee is going to be upset. They're going to be angry. They're going to threaten. I'm going to call my attorney. I'm going to file a complaint. You're discriminating against me, all of these things. And so I like to have that witness there because then it doesn't become, if this goes into legal, it's not this person versus this person. We have two, two right. people against one. That's all what happened. And no matter... Anytime that I've sat down with managers and leaders and we've talked about what the, what is this going to look like, we map everything out, you just never know how that other person's going to respond. That's right. You don't. Yes. But 
I, so I really like this idea of HR being in a supporting role. So when we go to the second point that you make today in terms of why HR often gets scapegoated, you say that oh. HR isn't the police or the high school principal. And so again, how did HR get itself into this position where they're viewed that way? Can you say more about that? Sure. When you, as managers, a lot of times managers, and it depends on the organization, a lot of times they were actually in the department and then they got promoted to, a, to the supervisory role and they were friends with these individuals. And so the, it, it creates this issue where I don't want to, I don't want to ruin that friendship. Or even if they come into the organization as the manager, they didn't grow up in the organization. They want their people to like them. They want them to do a good job. So I don't want to have to tell them when they're doing something wrong or explain why we have this policy that they're complaining about. I, it's easier for me just to say, HR is making us do it. No, it's, and so that's, it's just an easier way to do it. We have to do it because of HR. And I can remember going into organizations that never had an HR person before. And all of a sudden it's now that we have HR, this is why we have to do it or things like that. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want that reputation. There's a reason why we do things the way we do them, not just because we want to make life miserable for everybody, but it's just easier to have that conversation when you can point to someone else. It's, okay, guys, it's not me. I'm on yeah. your side. I get it. But this is what HR is telling us we have to do. And I've also heard it. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, you're going to go to HR. I'm mm -hmm. going to call HR. I'm going to send you to HR. It's like the parent relationship where yeah. the mom says, "If you just wait till your father gets home and you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> How do we turn this around? And I think this is just a scenario I see. So you have a manager, somebody who has been promoted because they're very good at what they do expertise-wise, but they're not necessarily good with people. And so as an HR person, you can say, oh, I got called in because there's employees who were complaining about the bad, like bullying type humor that was going on in the department, just for an example. And they got fed up with it. So they came sure. to HR. So now HR is in the position that they want to go to the manager, but the manager is basically saying, oh, they're just being guys or whatever it is that that manager believes. So the manager really hasn't been trained properly. So now yeah. HR has to go to one more level up and say, we've got to get some, yeah. probably the whole management team or other ma managers also need it. But in particular, but this manager doesn't get it, that this, is, yeah. this could be a real liability for the organization. So now HR has got to be an enforcer in the sense of, or at least calling the elephant out in the room that there is actually an issue here that around management. Or, yeah, absolutely. And we, I will say this across organizations, it's not just one particular industry, one type of organization, but across industries, this is consistent that people, you're a great widget maker. And so we're going to make you a manager of people or I've seen you've been in the department the longest, so you should be the manager of the department. And then the organization does not give the manager the skills, the tools, the resources, the training that they need to now be a people leader. And then that's one of the things that happens. I don't know how to handle this. I'm going to send it to HR and let HR deal with it. Yeah. And I think one of the pictures of success that I'm sure we've both 
can attest to it, other HR people can attest to that if there is a shared or a partnership between the manager and the HR, that they can sit with them in the, those conversations. That's a different thing. So we're going to have a conversation with the team as long as that manager is supportive and saying, I recognize there's a problem. I'm going mm-hmm. to basically look to you to help me become sure. better at this. And mm-hmm. so they begin to partner around this issue. We're going to change the way policies are implemented in the organization that this manager becomes part of the team in terms of changing things. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's mm-hmm. a great role for mm-hmm. HR to be that coach, I think, mm-hmm. as you've expressed. And that can provide some more opportunity. But they have to be able to step up to the plate. Yeah. Right. It's always a, it's always interesting when I ask if I go out to do supervisory or management training, one of my first questions is, how did you get the, into this role? Is this a role you really want? Why do you want it? And just to understand where they are coming from. And sometimes it's, I was told that I needed to do this or I don't know, I wanted more money or, <laughs> okay, so let's talk about what needs to happen so that you can be successful. And that's really looking at whether we're talking from an HR perspective, whether I'm talking to employees or I'm talking to managers, I'm talking to leaders. My role as HR in the organization is I want to see everybody be successful because when everybody's successful, the organization is successful. Yeah, that's right. It gets tough too. I think there is a style of managing, which is just to say, look, it's tough to find really great people out there. This is an employee that I've got in my department that, yeah, they take naps every now and then or don't show up when they're supposed to show right. up. But hey, I am going to ignore that because I don't want to lose another person yeah. in my department. And so that's just a, a slippery slope of, mm-hmm. of just not really mm-hmm. wanting to deal with the problem. And it makes it difficult for HR. They have to decide as well. Am I just going to let this go because I can see it. People are talking about it. Why does this person always seem to get away with X, Y, Z? And we don't. And yep. So again, I think in, in, in my role, if I see that going on, I think about the conversations that need to take place at the management level. So that whether it's supervisors getting together or managers getting together, whatever that level is, that's where the conversations have to take place. Because I feel like sometimes a supervisor or a manager needs to be called out by their peers. Let's talk about what's actually happening. Here's the policy, and that's your next point here. (laughs) Policies are there for a reason. Mm -hmm. Here's the policy. Why do we have it? (laughs) And what is it that we're actually supposed to be doing with this policy? Mm -hmm. So, Yes. And so with policies, sometimes I'll hear managers say, oh, HR, they just sit around and make up policies that we can't enforce. And maybe that's true. I don't know about every organization. But one of the things that I do is I will talk to the management team and the leadership team and I'll say, okay, in your employee handbook, you have a cell phone policy that says employees are not permitted to have their cell phones in certain areas of the organization. But when I walk through the organization, I see employees on their cell phones. Why are they on their cell phones? Well, it's just, again, going back to what you said, it's just a pain to keep telling people. And if I tell them they can't build their cell phone, they're going to quit or whatever. So we just ignore it. I'm like, 
So my comment back is, it doesn't matter to me if you have a cell phone policy or not. Mm -hmm. I, I honestly don't, it doesn't matter to me. What does matter is that we're gonna put policies in place that you can enforce. Mm -hmm. So let's look at all the policies and let's talk about this. And I had this example with cell phones and the leadership team, I sat with the leadership team and I said, it doesn't matter to me what you do with cell phones. I just wanna make sure that your policy matches what you're doing. And they eventually came to, we shouldn't have cell phones on the floor. I'm like, okay, then we can write the policy that way. But the key is from an HR perspective, I am always going to include leadership and management into the policies. I'm not going to create a policy that they don't know about or that we haven't talked about because there's a reason. In some organizations, there are uh, issues that are compliance issues from outside the organization. We have to do this. It's not a negotiable. So if you have 50 or more employees in government, if you have, you have to follow FMLA, we don't have a choice. We have to have an FMLA policy. It's not a choice that we can make. Now, there's some things within the policy we can tweak, but you have to have the policy or equal employment opportunity, those types of things. They're, they come from government and we have to have those policies. Now, then we look at it and say, okay, what can we do to enforce them? Then there's the policies that are organization specific. And so, again, looking at it and saying, why, asking the question, why do we have this policy? Can we enforce it? Can it be changed so that it can be enforced? And then I see sometimes, oh, this is a really nice policy to have. If you're not enforcing it, get it out of your employee handbook. So there's, so I don't want anybody to say, I don't know why we do that. HR said we had to. I want to have those conversations with leadership and we have the right policies that we're required to have and that we can enforce. And then they can go back when an employee questions it and says, we talked about this and this is the why behind it. Not The why is not because HR said we had to. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great point. And I'd like to highlight one of the things that can happen is when a particular department lobbies, goes around HR, goes up to executive level and lobbies for a change in policy. And now you're getting told this is going to be a change in policy, but there's been no conversation. And I could think of an example where I was brought in and the HR had, they had really not decided exactly how much authority HR was going to have. It was a very mm -hmm. siloed organization. And what I learned was that there was a particular department lobbying that when vacation wasn't used, that they could get paid out, that their department wanted to get paid for unused vacation. So what I agreed to in the contract is that we would have the leadership team, as you mentioned, sit around a table. This is the leadership team. We're going to talk about policies. Now, had I tried to do this unilaterally or had HR tried to do this yeah. unilaterally, it would never have worked. It's a very strong department manager. Mm -hmm. But as a team, I said, okay, let's talk about vacation policy. Why do we have it? And we started getting into this philosophical conversation about how important it was that vacation be taken. And if employees couldn't take vacation, then there was a problem. And also we got around to the fact that if managers were not good at making sure that employees could take vacation, that was a problem. Right. And, and so all this conversation took place. This department had no chance of getting that policy passed because we all decided, you know, maybe you need to get vacation scheduled at the beginning of the year and document if you're not able to get those vacations in, that's a different issue. That's a staffing issue. And you need to be documenting that. That's also for your people too. So it was a very interesting way of going at some of these policies. Many times that facilitator role, it is 
But as you said, bringing that policy out and asking the question, what is this policy? Why do we have it? And that the idea of the policy is my biggest pet peeve is having policies that don't get enacted. They, we talk about them and then we put them away and then maybe they're updated in three years. That isn't the value of policies. And I think about Max Weber. I've been talking about him a lot lately in, in podcasts for various reasons, but it has to do with organization effectiveness and that policies are part of the, I think, the life of the organization where there's some predictability, that you want the policies to create some sense of predictability. And not that you want to hamstring anybody and say, this is going to prevent you from being creative or think outside the box. We are open to that, but it has to be within a framework or structure that we understand the constraints. That these are certain, you mentioned the cell phones on the floor. I think safety is mm-hmm. like one of the sure. primary first filters. It says, okay, what are we doing here and how safety related? to this policy and other concerns, all kinds of different factors that play into whether a policy is providing appropriate boundaries in the organization. And then we can have a conversation. Yeah. No, a couple of things. I like the fact that really a policy, again, there's going to be some compliance things that we just don't have a choice on. And they typically come from outside the organization. We have to do this because the, the law says we have to do it. And then there's internally putting those policies in place that are more guideposts or guardrails mm-hmm. that say, here's, here's the parameters that you operate within. And then you can be, you can be creative, innovative, that type of thing. But the one thing that I see a lot of times in organizations, if I sit down and I look at their policies, I'm like, this is a really odd policy. Where did this one come from? I don't usually see this in organizations. Oh, 15 years ago, we had this employee and he would do these crazy things. So we put a policy in place. And I see organizations wanting to do that where they have an employee that goes outside the boundaries or does really weird things. We better get a policy. No, you need to have a conversation with that employee. And our employee handbooks become this whole list of do's and don'ts and not really guidelines for the organization. Yeah. Kim, I think it would be great to do a series with you on policies and we can work right through a policy manual and have people join us and talk about their questions and their experiences. And I think there's a lot of just the discipline policy, how that is addressed. The There's a lot of pieces here Mm -hmm. that that are really relevant to to HR, the challenges in HR. So we'll have to put that in our... Our stoke here. I think that rounds out. It, would you like to say anything else on the topic of HR as scapegoat? I think we can round out episode four. Any closing comments or thoughts? Sure. One last thing that I would say about it is I work with a lot of HR professionals. And I think as an HR professional, we need to evaluate why are we in this role? And sometimes I'll hear, I, I want to help the employees. Okay. But really from an HR perspective, our role is to help, as I mentioned, everybody be successful from leadership on down to the entry-level employee coming in. Because when everybody in the organization is successful, the organization is successful. And so I think as HR professionals, how do you portray yourself? Thinking about that 
and how you approach things. Again, do you come in with, I'm HR and I know everything and you need to do what I say? That's a problem. You're not going to get real far. So coming in, I love to ask questions because it doesn't, it doesn't put people on the defensive. Tell me about this. Why is this way? Or why do you want this way? Explain to me. And so I think we need to look at our approach as an HR person as well. Thank you so much. That's a great wrap up. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye.